from app.com, it's time to talk college hoops in the Garden State. Welcome to Jersey Jump Shot. That's right, it's once again time for Jersey Jump Shot, episode five of our third season. Ryan Ross here with Jerry Carino, Steve Edelson, and Chris Eisman. Uh, a fun show planned for you today. We're going to, of course, recap some of the games from this past week. We have a fun interview coming up, though, from Ray Perone, a longtime Division One college basketball referee. That's right, you get the official's perspective in today's show. You do not want to miss that. Uh, before we get to that, though, just a quick recap of this past week, Seton Hall, they win round one versus St. John's. Rutgers goes one and one with a win over Iowa, a loss at Minnesota. Monmouth, two and one. They lose a tough one to Iona, but bounce back with wins over Fairfield and Manhattan. Princeton, they keep uh, rolling with a win over Dartmouth. Seton Hall, they lose to, or uh, St. Peter's loses to Canisius. They're still in second place, though, in their conference. A, a fun week of college basketball, Jerry, and we'll start with you because round two. Seton Hall and St. John's happening in just a few hours from uh, the time we're recording right now. Right. So this is a special game tonight in Walsh Gym. Walsh is 80 years old. It is a historic place, and it's hosting a Big East game for the first time since 1985. And it's a game that will feature a crowd that is just about all students. So I think it, the potential for something, a really special moment, is super high. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that this all-student thing really becomes, you know, a a staple going forward. I would love to see Seton Hall try to do this regularly uh, as a non-conference event. They're not going to do it for league games. They had to because of the circumstances. And I, I'd love to see maybe Rutgers looking to doing this in the barn at some point, uh, which is similar in capacity and history to Walsh Gym. So, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. And, listen, if Seton Hall can finish off a sweep of St. John's, that'll be significant uh, because – St. John's is a talented team and they're a rival and it's tough to beat a team two straight games. So Seton Hall's in pretty good shape and they, they played a gutsy game to beat the, the Johnnies in the Garden Saturday. And I think they have a good chance to continue that in what should be a bandbox environment akin to Kevin Willard's living room tonight in South Orange. Yeah, that'll be a fun one. Certainly one that uh, you want to check out if, if you're unfamiliar with it or if you're just curious to see what it's going to look like. Should be a really fun atmosphere atmosphere for St. John's and Seton Hall tonight. Uh, Chris, as for you and Rutgers, they win against Iowa and then they lose at Minnesota. Just kind of consistently going one and one, it seems like, every week for the Scarlet Knights. Yeah, you know, Ryan, uh, Rutgers had one of the best defensive performances you will ever see against Iowa. It was a Steve Peichel patented game. You know, the shots weren't falling for either team, but Rutgers did everything that it had to do at the defensive end to completely neutralize Iowa. It was just a tremendous performance, and it was a really solid victory at home. But then they go on the road, and they lose um, yesterday or, or Saturday at Minnesota. And it was just, a, a you know, Peyton Willis had an incredible game, 32 points, eight three-pointers for the Golden Gophers, and that was the difference. And, and Steve Peichel wasn't, you know, he kind of said that his defense wasn't, the team's defense wasn't where quite needed to be, but it's, it was still pretty good. I mean, all things considered, but Peyton Will, Willis just had an incredible game and that was the difference. And Rutgers is now one and six on the road. Um, this season, they have two more winnable games this week at home against Maryland on uh, tomorrow. And then on Saturday at Nebraska, again, two winnable games that they have to get. This is a crucial stretch now for Rutgers to really try and get back into the NCAA tournament picture and keep its hopes alive. So, you know, we'll see what happens, but certainly, uh, you know, they have to continue to kind of, pile up wins and and certainly the the loss at minnesota was a setback 
Yeah, we'll talk more a little bit about the upcoming week after our interview segment. And Steve, of course, the in the mid-majors, Mammoth and Iona, as good as advertised there, a, a one-point overtime loss for Mammoth, and then they bounce back with wins over Fairfield and Manhattan. St. Peter's splits as well this past week, going one and one. Yeah, I mean, really looking at the Iona game, just a heartbreaking loss for Mammoth. They had that game won. Had they made the free throws down the stretch, they didn't. They end up losing by a point in overtime. But that that really was a game that has kind of springboarded Mammoth. They've really started playing well again, like they were early this season. Uh, you know, a solid road win at Fairfield. And then they were much the better on Sunday against Manhattan at home. That's the beginning of a four-game homestand for Mammoth. They can sweep that. You know, they're, they're going to be really in good shape. And, and I, I think this is going to be a very interesting stretch for the team that has really started to bounce back from the 23-day COVID pause. I mean, I think the real story right now in New Jersey mid-majors is Princeton. They've won 10 straight. Um, they are really playing well, and they are looking like a, really the favorite in the Ivy right now. They're playing so good. Um, you know, if you look at St. Peter's, Tough loss for them against Canisius on on Sunday. That was a little bit of a setback for them because they had come out of their COVID pause playing very well, winning three straight. But still, a very good team, and and uh, they're they're going to be a force to be reckoned with in the MAC. You know, I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a fun interview coming up for you. And if it sounds like we're going a little bit fast here at the top of the show, it's because we cannot wait to play our interview with Ray Perone. Jerry and, and uh, Steve caught up with him yesterday. Uh, Jerry, just set us up. This is a, this is a great, great conversation. If you love college basketball, you want to listen into this. Very rarely do you really hear officials or former officials talking at length about their craft. Uh, Ray was so generous to do that with us and so candid. Just to give you a little background, I've known Ray for, for 20 years. He, he's, a, he's deep roots locally, Bridgewater, uh, Middlesex Borough. He assigns uh, referees, uh, officials for the Middlesex Greater Middlesex Conference Tournament. He did that in Somerset County for years. So I have a good rapport with Ray, and I'm so grateful for him to do this. Um, you know, Ray still works as, as an evaluator for Big Ten uh, for the Big Ten officials. So we had to be careful asking him about specific incidents. But you know, we got to the point as far as last second whistles and you know the gyms that he's been in that are the toughest. And, and he told a couple of great stories, including the call he regrets most uh, and a handling of an irate Rutgers, a former Rutgers coach that you're going to love it. I mean, it's, this is a spectacular and I think rare opportunity to peer into the mind of a high major college basketball official. Let's get right into it. Here is Jerry and Steve's conversation with Ray Perone. All right. This week's guest on the Jersey Jump Shot podcast is Ray Perone. I know you know that name. Ray worked 35 years as a Division I men's college basketball referee official. He's a native of Middlesex Borough, a longtime Bridgewater resident. He's also lent his hand to several local high school county tournaments as the official assigner. Ray retired from officiating in 2019 after a distinguished career, but he still keeps a hand in the game as an observer and an evaluator for the Big Ten and on the Division Three level. Ray, welcome aboard. Love seeing you. Great to have you join us. Jerry, thanks so much. It's uh, great to join you and Steve, and I'm looking forward to our time together. So, Ray, let's start with this question. You know, you put in 35 years. What kept you coming back? What kept you doing it for so long? And just a general question, what's it like to be a Division I college basketball official? What kept coming me uh, kept me coming back was I was a glutton for punishment, I guess. But um, <laughs> quite, quite honestly, it's, um, 
you know, for someone who had a love of the game, uh, was a, a, a very average high school, maybe even a below average high school player, knew I wasn't going to play in college. Um, at a, a young age, determined that I didn't want to coach. And so a natural way to stay with the game was to get into officiating. And I was fortunate to have some opportunities at a young age. Um, as things progressed and I started at the um, uh, college level, uh, at the mid-majors, right, at the, you know, the Northeast Conference, the Ivy, the Patriot, the America East Conferences of, of that ilk, and then was fortunate enough to be selected actually in the same year uh, for the Big East and the ACC. And that started, that just elevated my career to an entirely different level. Um, what is it like? It's, it's, a, um, it's a controlled adrenaline rush. That's the best way I can explain yeah. it. As, a, as an athlete and as a competitor, I'm a vice president of sales for a title insurance company. I've been in sales all my life, uh, both in management roles and, and obviously in, in, in sales itself. And the opportunity to compete every day is what I thrive upon. Uh, that's, that's what, you know, that's why I get up in the morning. And to do it at the highest level in the country was a very unique opportunity and experience. So um, what what kept me coming back was my desire to be the best in the country uh, or certainly one of the best. And, um, you know, I was fortunate that a lot of things fell in place. I had some opportunities. Uh, I also had, a. I, I do believe this in every walk of life. We all stand on somebody's shoulders at some point in time, right? There's somebody there that sure. takes, a, takes a chance um, with you. I try to do that in, in my business role. Um, to, uh, to give people opportunities. And um, the, the, it's, it's just, it was really that opportunity to compete for two hours every day, almost a hundred times a year. I worked the height of my schedule. I was working between 90 and a hundred games a year Wow! in the major conferences. Um, and so to compete night in and night out against yourself and against the standards that are set and against your cohorts, right against your contemporaries um so it was uh it was just that that desire to be the best and want to succeed every night out ray from those thousands of games you you refereed during your career are there one or two that really stand out in your mind that's a great question Stephen. i get that i get asked that quite frequently and and it and that kind of evolves that the answer is yes um i think back to um, some of my firsts, for example, my first NCAA tournament, I was um, only working in the Northeast Conference, the Ivy Patriot and the America East. At the time I was selected uh, for my first NCAA tournament, was, which was an abnormality. The large majority of officials that were selected were from the major conferences. Right. So it was a, an extremely humbling uh, honor. To do so, um, I, the first game I worked in the NCAA tournament was Navy versus Utah when Rick Majerus was the coach at Utah. And you might remember, those of you that are old enough, you might remember that Utah had four first-round draft pick, NBA draft picks in their starting five. Um, Keith Van Keith Horn. Keith Van Horn? Yep, Keith Van Horn, um, Mike Doliak, Miller, and I can't remember the fourth – player's name right now but and navy gave them all they could handle navy it was like an 11 point game and consequently um that same year 
which was extremely unusual and still is, I was selected to then move on to the regionals. And I worked down in um, San Antonio, Texas, in the Alamo Dome. Um, I worked the uh, UCLA-Iowa State game, which went double overtime. And and for me, I was hoping it would go 22 overtime. I didn't want it to end. It was just <laughs> a fantastic game. Uh, we had very little to do with it. Cameron Dollar hit a layup literally at the buzzer uh, to win the game for UCLA. Um, and I'll tell you a story in a minute, but um, ironic how things work, right? So that was the year that Steve Lavin took over for Jim Harrick at UCLA. So it's it's uh, Steve's first NCAA tournament. They get to the regionals. It's my first NCAA tournament. I get to the regionals. And then as our careers uh, progressed, we kind of paralleled each other in a, in a lot of ways. And I hope if we have time, I'll tell you one other story a little later. Um, about how that relationship came to help me a little bit. So, All right, well, uh, good. We'll, we'll, we'll try to get back to that, Ray, for sure. Uh, I, so you did some NCAA tournament games. You did the regionals, which is awesome. I have some some questions for you about. All right, toughest toughest place to be an official, craziest home crowd or craziest home environment. What jumps out at you? Yeah, um, West Virginia's nuts because it's small. It's compact. I say small. It's thirteen thousand. But it's compact. It's all concrete, so you really can't hear yourself think. The fans, you don't have three feet on the on any part of the sidelines. Wow! So they're, they're right on top of you. Um, and um, uh, even noon games on a Saturday or Sunday, they're out there with their red cups at ten o'clock in the morning, getting ready for the game. <laughs> <laughs> and there's not water in those red cups. <laughs> so it's fun. And and um, Steve and Jerry, I'll tell you this. Uh, uh, those atmospheres just make you want to be better, right? You do, you, it just it just drives you and helps you um, to be better. So West Virginia comes to mind immediately. Um, one of the first, uh, not one of the first, the very first time I worked in Madison Square Garden. Um, and again, uh, as Jerry mentioned, you know, I, I grew up in Middlesex. I'm a Central Jersey guy all my life. Um, as a as a young adult, I mean. Playing in the garden was all I dreamed about, right? Shooting all those those baskets in middle school and high school. It was like it was always in the garden, right? And now all of a sudden I have a game there, and I'm looking around like a kid that's gone to New York City for the first time. <laughs> and a, a veteran official that I was with came over to me, I guess saw I was um, awestruck, if you will, and he said, enjoy it, soak it all in, but when we throw it up tonight, this court is 94 by 54, like every other court you've refereed on. That's and great. that was the great, it just brought me right back down. And that's the same, I've used that hundreds of times with first time officials who might be their first Big East game, ACC game, Big Ten game, first tournament game, what, you know, anything that would have that aura um, about it. So it, it's those types of um, environments. You know, it was, it was always great to be in the larger arenas. I'd rather be with 15 or 18 or 20,000 people than 300, you know, at, at, at Fairleigh Dickinson. So why is that, um, Ray? Well, because it, in the big arenas, um, it first off, it's easier to cut. For me personally, it was easier for me to focus and concentrate on the game, right? You just – the, the magnitude of the moment. Um, and you can't – you hear the oohs and ahs, but you can't hear the individual comments. 
So uh-huh. when you're in a when you're in a smaller gym, mm. you hear every now you have to box it out, right? You have to have the mental discipline to eliminate that, but you can hear it, right? And until you get experienced and confident in your own abilities, um, you you just hear it. So there, there's a big advantage to being in the larger, louder arenas, if you will. At least there was for me. Fascinating. All right. The the coaches, handling of coaches, bedside manner. How do you deal with an irate coach? And who are some of the toughest coaches to handle? Yeah, great question. Um, again, as you as you learn, when I um when I first started, I was kind of quick. I I uh I thought every question was an affront to my ability, right? What do you mean that's a foul? Boom, technical foul. You know, huh. um, that's that that's that's not and and I'm, I'm over exaggerating, but I think you get the point. Right. Right. So um, as you learn, you can see things coming. If a marginal call is made and and every coach has their own personality. Right. So you have to learn. I really was as much a psychiatrist or psychologist as I was a referee. You had to manage the personalities. OK. Um, John Beeline was more reserved and easier. And he'd, he'd wait till you got next to him. And all he would ever say, and Tom Crean was the same way at Marquette, Indiana, and Georgia. They would both um, very calmly say, is that the rule? Are you right? Huh. Pretty wow. powerful, right? It's pretty <laughs> powerful. Yeah. As opposed to guys who want to run up and down the sideline and scream and, you know, do histrionics, right? So you've got to get to... Um, uh, you know, the, you have to understand the personalities. Um, you know, I, I remember, and since this is um, our base here is, is somewhat central Jersey. If you remember when Kevin Bannon came to Rutgers, yep. Um, Kevin was a very excitable personality and he was notorious for trying to bring the crowd into the game. And I can remember, and I was, you know, first or second year with Kevin uh, going over to him during a game. I said, Kevin, you can use any language you want. You can say anything you want when I'm standing next to you. But if you think you're going to bring 9,000 people into this game against me, you're sadly mistaken. And that, and that just sort of leveled the playing field, right? Wow. What I was telling him was like, talk to me, right? We're both, adult, we're both adults. Talk to me. I understand the emotion of the game, but I'm also not going to allow you to bring distractions into the game. And I, I used to tell uh, coaches all the time when they start getting goofy, I would say it's not a good idea to distract me because I'm not that good to begin with. And usually when I'm distracted, I make bad calls against the team that's distracting me. Oh, great stuff. Go ahead, Steve. <laughs> and they get it, but it was really, it was really about managing personalities. Right. And, right. and I'll tell you one thing very quickly. I know we're restricted for time, but um, I can remember telling Jim Calhoun, uh, one night um, that uh, yelling and screaming isn't going to make me any better, right? Talk to me. Let's figure it out together. Um, later in that game, he wanted – he literally was begging for a technical foul and wanted to get thrown out. And I said, Coach, if I have to stay and watch this garbage, you have to stay and watch it. And he <laughs> smiled, and he, he got it, and he moved on, right? So it's, it's your personality – and it's managing their personalities. That's great. Can can you actually watch a game as a fan on TV, or you f- find yourself sitting there refereeing the game? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. Um, even when I was 
officiating. If I was in a hotel, if I, you know, a Saturday or Sunday, you might have a, a later afternoon game and you're at the hotel and you're, you're relaxing and you have a game on. I couldn't tell you the score. I couldn't tell you, you know, what the players I was watching um, either someone that I knew, right. Uh, even across the country uh, or seeing what the officials were doing to handle situations or calls their selection, that kind of thing. So now, you know, it, I'll tell you um, as much as I love the game, I'm not a very good fan. Uh, it's, it's just so hard. It even is today. So, uh, interesting. Uh, all right. So Ray, we've had on our beat, we've had a lot of discussion recently about last second calls in games, you know, tie game, two or three seconds left foul call away from the basket. Uh, just generally speaking, like what is your philosophy toward that? How did you handle those situations as an official? Yeah. Um, so a couple parts to that. Um, if you've been making the call for 39 minutes and 57 seconds, then make the call with three seconds left. Hand checking, player control fouls, you know, illegal screens, whatever it might be, right? But you, but with, you know, um, under three or four minutes to go in the game, you don't want to start introducing plays that haven't been there. Um, one of my uh, – or, or my supervisor, when I got into the Big East, um, helped give me a tremendous perspective on improving – he used to evaluate us from the last four minutes of the game back. So in other words, with 10 or 12 seconds to 30 seconds to a minute all the way back, um, those were the most critical points because, listen, we're going to make mistakes. I think um, last report I saw, uh, NCAA officials have about a 92 or 93% accuracy, which is remarkable. When you right. think about how many possessions, right. how many plays. Sure. Um, I was fortunate to be closer to 96% um, for the last 10, 12 years of my career. And I think it was because of that focus. Um, so I, I think the first part is understanding the game and what's in the balance. I hear people say all the time, don't let the officials make the decision, right? Don't let them decide the game. Well, if a player does something stupid, and by that I mean, you know, causes obvious contact or whatever it might be. I haven't decided. They have. Right? So um, I, I think it's the consistency. When officials are consistent throughout the course of the game, there's less chance of a surprise at the end. Um, and I think it also gets down to right now, um, Jerry and Steve, what we're seeing is, um, you know, the dinosaurs like myself are – are leaving the game and there's an awful lot of really good young officials, but they need to mature. They need to say, I, I, there's a, I saw a couple of clips this week, Jerry, I think I know what you're referring to. Right. Um, if you see those hundreds of times and maybe thousands of times, you get a different perspective and understanding than if you're seeing it for the first few times. So a lot of it is a matter of experience. Really good stuff. Uh, any, Right. The uh, how has officiating changed over the years? Have rules evolved? Are there are there are there certain calls that are really tough to make or interpret based on changes in the way the game is officiated or or rule changes? Yeah, the, um, it, it's evolved tremendously, Jerry. When I think back when I first started, I think one of the reasons why I got an opportunity is because um, the NCA went from two person to three person crews. 
So it increased, you know, every staff in America had to increase by 50%. So it gave opportunities. And then you had shot clocks and then they revised the shot clock twice. Um, you know, recently there's been a restricted arc put in. There's been a change in the uh, philosophy of the balance between offense and defense. If you think about probably 12 or 15 years ago, we had to work real hard to get hand checking That's out right. of the game. So, so you don't see that, right? There's a restricted arc now in front of the basket. They want more um, fluid mo- uh, movement. They want more freedom of movement in and around the lane. So it constantly evolves, and the officials that are successful are those officials that take the changes and adapt to it. Anybody that resists the changes is going to get left behind. So I think one of my attributes was being able – I was a really good rules person, but I also understood the the spirit and intent of the rule. What are they trying to accomplish here? And then you can um, adjudicate the rule if you understand that, uh, you know, if you have a good understanding of the rule. How hard is the block charge call, Ray? That seems to me like just brutally hard to make. Uh, it's easier when you're not refereeing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was with a couple of uh, um, I was at a couple of high school games this week. I assigned for the Greater Middlesex Conference, and I was able to get out to a couple of games. And I was telling one of the athletic directors that. Uh, I haven't missed a call from the stands yet. I'm I'm uh, I'm undefeated here, but uh, <laughs> but um, I think it comes with proper training and education, proper mechanics, being in the right place, understanding that. And this is it, to the layperson. This may not sound reasonable, but to get the block charge call right, and we have to referee the defense. What I mean is the the whole. Um, onus is on the defender. So it really, and I have to be careful with this. I'm going to say it doesn't matter. And that's kind of an extreme. It doesn't matter as much what the offensive player is doing, but it does matter what the defender is doing. So if the official is looking more at the defender and knows if they meet the criteria of the rule, that play becomes a lot easier than officials that are not. So it's a matter of training, education, discipline to not follow the ball, but rather follow responsibilities. And um, it it is a difficult call, but it does become made easier if you follow kind of the protocols uh, to get there. Interesting. I think, I think traveling is the hardest call in the game right now because you got the Euro step, you got what the NBA does. You got kids from all over the world now playing at the college level, right? Right. So there's there's a lot of different influences. Um, and I, I will tell you both this, the, the game is so much faster and quicker and the kids are so much stronger than ever before. So they can do things. I mean, you got kids 6'10 shooting three-point shots, right? Sure. You know, shooting 35% from the three-point line. D- didn't happen 25 years ago. No, no. So So the game evolves. We have to evolve and we have to adapt to the game and the rule changes as they incur. Right. What about the uh, the, mon- the use of monitor reviews uh, in these games? Like that was something that you hardly ever saw, you know, years ago, yeah. and now it's commonplace. How, what is your feeling on this and how it, how it, you know, changes the flow of a game? Yeah, I, I personally embraced it. I loved it because um, it, it showed exactly how good we were. Now, listen, we had to change more than we'd like to. 
but it's also really nice coming out. You leave the monitor and you then go over to the coach and say, what I'm about to tell you is factual. You saw me at the monitor. It's no longer my opinion. And this is what occurred. The other thing is this, if you think of it from a practical perspective, you guys are sitting in your family rooms or your living rooms, wherever, and you're watching a game and you see a view from a camera that we don't see on the court. So you know what actually happened and we don't. Isn't that ridiculous? So yeah, we, we, peti- we petitioned CBS, ABC, um, CBS, ESPN, and Fox about 15 years ago that when we go to the monitor, even if it's something simple, uh, was his foot on the line for a three-point shot, we want every angle before we leave the monitor so that we don't make a decision and then 10 seconds later, Jay Billis gets an angle that we didn't get. Right? Does that make sense? So sure. I think I think the monitor um, used properly makes the game better. Um, the last thing I ever wanted to do was leave an arena um, with a wrong call. If I could fix it, I want my ego was checked a long time ago. It's about being right, right? It's about getting plays right. Um, and but what I would like to see is that we just kind of speed it up a little bit. I'd really like to see conferences have almost like the NFL does and um, uh, Major League Baseball, and I think the NBA does, but have somebody from the conference at, you know, watching the games and they buzz you in and I've got, you know, 30 seconds to get this fixed. You guys are going to, you know, the officials are going to look at the same thing, but I'm going to have every angle. I'm going to do everything and I'm going to make, you know, kind of help them make the call and get it fixed and do it in, a very quick time frame, not two or three minutes uh, or even a minute um, where it should be something simple, easy, and quick. Steve, you got anything else for Ray? No, I think we've done pretty good here. I mean, I think it was fascinating, everything that, that we've gone over here. You did allude to a story a little bit earlier, Ray. Well, I don't know if you yeah. want to yeah, circle let's back to that. Let's wrap yeah, up yeah, there. yeah re- real quick. So um, the foundation is I worked my first NCAA tournament um, regional semifinal, right? UCLA, Iowa State, double overtime, great game. Everybody's happy. Um, well, I think other than probably Iowa State, right? They lost at the buzzer. But, I mean, it right. was just a, just a great, great, great college basketball game. So we fast forward two years later. I have um, – I think it's the second round of the NCAA tournament. I'm in the old Hubert Humphrey Dome in, in Minneapolis, and um, what you have to understand is in the NCAA tournament, you're evaluated on every play and whoever scores the highest moves on to the next round. Okay. The better your crew is, the better for you, but you have to be the best on the crew. So we have uh, Ball State and UCLA and Ball State was real good that year coming out of the Mac. Ray McCollum was the coach and they're giving UCLA all they can handle. And, UCLA is just starting. There's maybe three and a half minutes to go. And I'm telling you, we're pitching a no-hitter. We have not missed anything. I mean, might be a judgment call here and there, but what we've put a whistle on, we have the entire crew, we've nailed. So there's about a little over three minutes to go, and UCLA is maybe they're up seven or or eight at this point. And UCLA uh, steals the ball. And I'm the, I'm the outside official, so now I'm going down ahead of it, and I'm going to be down at the end line. It's a one-on-one play. 
And I'm thinking in my head, oh, man, this guy's going to run this guy over. And I'm going to make a really pretty mechanics call behind my head that way. You know, like all these things are going through my head. Um, only problem is about three inches before the contact, the kid from UCLA pulled up and never contacted the kid from Ball State. Mm -hmm. Not so bad, right? Right. Except I already blew the whistle. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah, this, and it's this a true story. You can't, man, you got it. Don't edit this. You got to keep this in. You got it. So, so I blow and I go, boom, the other way. And as the air is coming out of my whistle, I'm trying to grab it and put it back in. Right? I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be the worst call in NCAA tournament history. Well, with that, Lavin comes running down the sideline at me. And he's, you know, about to go into his act. And I just put my hand out and I said, Steve. I know better than you how bad that call was. Please leave me alone. And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, you're going home, aren't you? In other words, I'm not going on to the next round. Yeah, he knew. I said, absolutely, 100%. I think that was 1999. I still haven't reported the foul. I never went to the table. <laughs> I mean, the foul was charged. My partner just said, you know, it was on – 12 UCLA or whatever. I went across the court. I just wanted to hide. I wanted to dig a hole. But Steve was great. And even in the press conference, when they asked him about it, he said, look, Ray Perone is one of the finest uh, officials in the country. Um, you know, he saw the play differently than I did. And then, and then Steve, um, as you know, years later became an, uh, an announcer, right. For ESPN. Sure. So we, we worked a lot of games together. And then when he, he came to St. John's, right, for a few years. So uh, right. we, we reconnected there, and it was really a, a pretty nice relationship. But, but I had earned his trust and confidence two years earlier in a really difficult game, right, a double overtime game, his rookie year as a head coach. So it was the basis of it. But, and, and by the way, that was the worst call I made in over 2,400 Division One games, by the way. I just did it on the national stage. So, you know. Wow. Awesome, awesome story. Speaks highly of you and of Steve Lavin. And Ray Perone, thank you for joining us on the Jersey Jump Shot podcast. This has been our pleasure, and we hope to hear from you again down the road. Jerry and Steve, thanks for uh, having me on, and keep doing what you're doing. You guys are terrific for the game of basketball. Jerry, you weren't kidding there. Great stuff from Ray. Thank you so much again for him, uh, to him for coming on the show and, and getting inside the mind of a 35-year Division I college basketball official. I mean, if you watch TV and you only see the officials and coaches talking to each other on the sideline, you always wonder what they're talking about. So you got a little bit of the, uh, the inside info there from Ray. Great stuff from him, Jerry. That was awesome. Yeah, and I, when I think about it, you know, you we do – we write and we tweet and we comment a lot on officiating – and I think what, one of the things that comes to the fore here is that these, these guys are, they're people too, you know? So, I mean, so we, we hammer them a lot and I, I'm guilty of that too, but, but, you know, you got to consider how tough the job is and, and to hear Ray, you know, acknowledge his mistakes and the challenges of doing his job, I think really adds a human face to that, to that role. So it's a valuable perspective to have. Steve, too, what was your big takeaway from, from hearing that? I mean, just to hear about these gyms and these games that he was involved in, it's it's interesting stuff. Well, and I think this is what fans really love, the behind the scenes, the little t tidbits, the stuff that they don't know that they can't see, and that's what Ray provided. And I, I think that's fascinating. I think every fan loves stuff like that.
And I like the little shout out to West Virginia, my alma mater. Thank you, Ray. You just don't walk into the WVU Coliseum and leave with a win. So great there to hear go. the stories there from Ray. Awesome stuff. Again, thanks to Ray Perone for stopping by the show. As we look to the week ahead, Jerry, you mentioned at the top, St. John's tonight for Seton Hall. Then they have Marquette on Wednesday. So a, a little bit of a tough stretch, a, a revenge opportunity for Marquette. Uh, on Wednesday for the Pirates. Yeah, if, if Seton Hall goes 2-0 this week, they're going to be ranked. They'll be back in the top 25. I expect Marquette to be ranked today. Marquette is red hot, the hottest team in, in the Big East. Uh, Seton Hall will have a lot of motivation um, because of the way the game ended at Marquette, which we talked about at length. And they will have Bryce Aiken back at some point from the concussion he suffered at the end of that game. So, I, you know, Seton Hall has played a lot of road games in league. They're home now. It's time for them to make a move. Uh, I do think there will be a lot of juice in their two games this week. I expect the Pirates to play well. That doesn't mean always mean you're going to win in the Big East, but I expect them to throw their best punch this week, and I, I would not surprise me at all if they pull off the sweep and beat Marquette Wednesday and then are back ranked and have really righted the ship. Not that it was ever wrong. Their net's 29. They're still in very good shape for the NCAA tournament, but this team has bigger goals than just making it. You know, they want to they make a run. They want to get a high seed. And you gotta you gotta win some of these big games. So I I think a real opportunity for that for the Hall this week, and I do expect them to play well. Absolutely, a good opportunity there. And as we said, always tough to beat a team twice in a row. So it starts tonight with St. John's and Chris Rutgers. They have Maryland on Tuesday, Nebraska on Saturday. These are two games that you look at on paper and you think Rutgers should play pretty well. It's just so hard to get a read on these Scarlet Knights of which team's going to show up on any given night. Absolutely, Ron. Well, we know this. Rutgers is very good at home. We, we've known that. We've seen that time and time again. Um, and this Maryland team is not good. You know, they beat in Illinois last week, but Illinois was out Kofi Coburn. So, you know, without him, it was just a, it was a more winnable game for Maryland. And they got that win. It was still surprising considering the way that we saw them play against Rutgers, where, you know, Rutgers obviously had that tough uh, first half down at Maryland. And then, you know, Ron Harper Jr. just went off and finished with 31 points to, to lead the Scarlet Knights to a comeback. But you can see, I mean, Maryland is not a well-coached team at this point. They didn't play great defense down the stretch. They took a lot of ill-advised shots this game. So this is certainly a beatable team, a beatable team for Rutgers, especially at home. It's a win that they have to get. And then you look at this Nebraska team, which is not doesn't have a win against a big team, big 10 team this season. They're 0-8 in the conference. Uh, currently, you know, they've been dealing with some uh, COVID-19 issues. They had a game postponed. So, listen, Rutgers went on the road at Nebraska last season and got blown out. They can't afford that again or else they'll just that, – that's it. You know, I mean, it, you're coming off that Minnesota loss. You need to get a road victory, and this is a perfect opportunity to get it done against a bad team, a reeling team that just has completely lost its way. So Rutgers cannot to afford to go on the road and have a dud at, at Nebraska. So, again, they still have a lot of work to do to get back into the NCAA tournament picture. They're, they're about 107 in the net. They have to improve that. And uh, this is a crucial, crucial stretch for Rutgers to pick up victories, get one on the road. And then, uh, you know, obviously before that, that February gauntlet starts. So it's a big week for Rutgers, one that they can't afford to, to waste these opportunities. Absolutely. It's it's go time for the Scarlet Knights. They need to start piling up some wins in these favorable matchups because, like you said, Chris, it's only going to get tougher from here on out if they want to improve that tournament resume. Uh, in the land of the mid-majors, Steve, a good one in the MAC uh, for this coming week. Monmouth, they have Canisius Friday, Niagara Sat uh, Sunday, St. Peter's, they have Marist and Manhattan coming up for this week, and then Princeton home against Yale in the Ivy League. Uh, a nice week ahead here for our mid-majors in New Jersey. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think uh, for Monmouth, you know, they swept Canisius and Niagara up in the Buffalo area earlier this year. 
but as we said earlier, you know, Canisius beat St. Peter's uh, over the weekend. So, so they're obviously playing well. Um, you know, listen, I, I saw Yale play earlier this year. They are a good team. That is going to be a very important game in the Ivy League standings and a big game for Princeton coming up. So, uh, again, it's going to be a very interesting week and a telling week, I think, in the mid-majors. Fun week in New Jersey college basketball coming up. And as we said, it starts tonight. And then we have a more or less a full week of action to look forward to. And of course, on the next episode of Jersey Jump Shot, we will break it all down for you next week. Our last episode in the month of January. So things really starting to heat up and get interesting as we head towards March. Thank you so much for listening to episode five of Jersey Jump Shot. Again, thanks to Ray Perone for stopping by the show. Of course, visit NorthJersey.com and APP.com to read Jerry, Steve, and Chris's reporting on college hoops. And if you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks again for listening to Jersey Jump Shot. For Jerry, for Steve, for Chris, I'm Ryan, and we'll talk to you next week. Jersey Jump Shot is a production of the Asbury Park Press and USA Today Network. Subscribe at app.com.